Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. So Frank, as we've been discussing, yay, WGA got their contract. Actors are still on strike. There's also, in addition to everything that we are fighting for in SAG, in the contract, which we've talked about before, AI, mm -hmm. many other things, there's another movement that's been happening sort of alongside this growing movement called Auditions or Work. And what actors are fighting for here is the recognition that, yes, auditions are work, but not only that, that they should be paid for this labor. Because as both of us know, it's intense labor to audition. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, as, as some of our listeners know, I used to be a card-carrying SAG-AFTRA member. Rivka still is. Um, you know, I lived in L.A. for a decade, was doing the whole, you know, actor auditioning thing, and um, and you're still doing it. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a shit ton of work to, to be a working actor and to put in the labor necessary to adequately perform in, in an audition. You know, one argument that we've heard from people is, you know, like, oh, an audition is just a job interview, and I don't get paid to go on job interviews. And there's some truth in that, but also it's completely inaccurate because the, the, the type of labor that is required to go into an acting audition is more exhaustive and intensive than I think uh, most of the work that I've done to go into job interviews. And now now being in, like, the, the nine-to-five, no pun intended, but, like, the, the, the regular job market, um, you know, I prepare for job interviews, but it's I'm not like I'm not studying over my lines. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I'm not I'm not hiring coaches. I'm not, you know, do, doing all the other work that goes into acting auditions. Um, an incredible amount of work. I mean, an inc there's incredible amount the, of work, the prep that you get yourself ready for. And then it all changed during the pandemic when normally you would go into a casting office where they would do doing a large amount of labor by putting on the lights, filming you getting you set up with a microphone, a camera. Having, having someone read with you. Yep. It is now up to the actor for the most part to do all of those things. So they are doing the literal job of a casting director, at least part of what that job would be assigned to a casting director in the past. Yes, this has been a big change, uh, as you said, in the pandemic. Um, a lot of auditions now are what is called in the business self-tapes, which means you get an email and they say, hey, you got an audition, please do all of the work of the actor and the casting director and send us a tape of your audition. And, you know, shooting one of those tapes is not, you, like Rivka said, you got to have lights, you got to have good sound, you got to have a decent background, you got to have quiet, you have to have someone reading with you. It's not just, it's not nothing to just like knock out one of these tapes. And guess what? If you, sh if you do one that's just like shooting from your iPhone, you know, if you're sitting in your car just reading the lines to camera, you're probably not going to get that fucking job because the casting directors are going to see that and be like, oh, they didn't put any work into this. They put they didn't put any labor into this. So and unfortunately, the reality is that because tapes have become so much more accessible and you can just ask for more of them, they'll be asking for more tapes than they might even be considering. We know this. You could be I've spent so much time on so many auditions that you know after the fact or you realize was just going to be given to a name 
a name, someone's friend, someone's family member. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's labor. And then on top of it, it's labor that you, you're sort of taking a gamble at whether it's going to be seen. There's so many factors that are involved. But bottom line, it's it's labor. It's labor. And the last thing, before we get to the auditions or work uh, movement, the last component of this is if you are a working actor, you have to essentially be on call during regular business hours to do these auditions. Mm -hmm. That is a huge, huge part of being a working actor that I don't think a lot of people know because even when casting directors were doing sessions on their own, those would all happen during regular business hours. And the way that it would usually work is that you know, maybe the day before, maybe two days before, but sometimes the day of, you would get an email or a call from your agent or manager. They'd be like, hey, you have an audition in three hours. You have an audition tomorrow at 11 a.m. You have to be there. There's no other choice. So the onus is put on the actors to then find jobs that are flexible and jobs that allow them to, at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, go and do all of this labor to fulfill the audition, meaning that like actors have to work in bars and restaurants and other things, other non-traditional employment. That's why that's why actors have those jobs. It's not because they don't know how to do anything else. It's because they literally have to be on call Monday through Friday, nine to five. Yeah, no, that's such a great point. And underlying all of that is actually I heard Jessica Chastain speaking on, I think it was a SAG after panel, pretty courageously the things she had to say, but just sort of like exposing the reality that underneath all of this is this toxic culture and this ideology that, well, you're doing something you love. So, Mm. you know, like you should just be grateful. Yeah. Getting paid, getting paid on like vibes, essentially (laughs) be grateful. And like any of this other stuff, you know, when you do the math, you that's why, like, I, I think sometimes also when actors get like, I remember my first job knowing not a lot, being like, wow, I'm getting this big paycheck. I also knew not, a th- you know, figuring out how to live. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot considering. But then you divide that in half of like all the work you did and how many hours you put in to get to that point. You're It's below minimum wage, like mm-hmm. far below, probably in the negative space. So this all being said, you would think, at least I thought when I first heard about this movement was, oh, they're fighting for something else to be, you know, that we're going to that we're going to fight to get into our contracts. So what you thought they were trying to get? It's a movement for actors to be paid for their work in auditions. Yeah, I thought that was, you know, the fight, at least the fight to be like, let's get this in our contracts. It turns Mm -hmm. out this has actually been in our contracts since 1947. What? So, yeah. So SAG-AFTRA's TV theatrical Schedules A and B states that performers are owed half the scale day rate for every audition we perform but don't book. This covers the vast majority of roles in network shows, studio features, and high-budget indies. Half our current day rate comes to $541 per audition. So what you're telling me is there are tens of thousands of dollars that I left on the table from my tenure as an actor because I simply didn't know about this part in the contract. That's cool. Yeah. And you might be wondering like, oh, is are some actors getting paid this, some not? For the most part, what's been happening is like nobody has been really, the way to enforce this is you actually have to go, you sort of have to push the studio to do this. Like for the reasons I just said, it's really hard. You would be an outlier you would probably fear being blacklisted. You would be fear being called 
difficult to work with. Your reps may be dropping you that like that's an impossible thing to think of, which Uh is why this is not a fight for an individual. This kind of fight to get what we've already been granted requires solidarity, requires a movement. And so Mm -hmm. it's been really amazing to see. And I'll be honest, I want to learn more. I haven't haven't dived in nearly enough. Um, into this movement, but it's Auditions Are Work. You can go to auditionsarework.org to find out more. It's really organized. And um, on here, they are listing their demands. So the demands, again, because this is already in the contracts, this is what they're saying. These are the steps that we need sag after a leadership to take to enforce audition pay. So the first one is rescind the September 28th, 2022 requirements notice, which limited the circumstances under which the union would pursue audition pay. These circumstances are not found in our contract and union members were not given a chance to vote on this change. So that's the first demand. The second is to reject any contract proposal from the AMPTP, the studios that diminishes the audition pay provision in any way. And third, to enforce the audition pay provision by using automated procedures. This would ensure that members do not need to file claims for their owed payments. So that would be Hell yeah. amazing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I'm I'm conflicted because I wish that I had known about this uh, provision in our contracts when I was still auditioning. But um, I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, I paid off my student loans, so you should have to pay off yours. No, I want I want the I want this movement to to gain some steam and I think it would be unbelievable for SAG to enforce this on behalf of its members especially because as we have learned over the course of this this SAG strike it's what's the number how many SAG actors qualify for the health insurance like less than 10% yeah. something some something yeah. along those lines you know most people in SAG ourselves included like do not are not working regularly you know like other than the people that you see on the tv shows regularly there's like tens of thousands of other actors who do not work that regularly and getting like getting money getting paid for the labor of auditioning would be like that would be a huge material win for tens of thousands of working actors yeah i mean to all your points i just want to I really hope people go check out this website because I am also just... We can link to it in the show notes. Amazed at how they're just very well organized. The points are all here. There's a audition pay calculator. So you could put in your gross earnings and like... Or you could put in the number of auditions that you have done um, and see your gross earnings. And then they have something that says direct impact on your life. Pay off your base union dues. Your car student loan payments covers your rent for a month. Like all of this stuff. And then the financial impact, exactly like you were just saying, they have a point about health insurance. Only Currently only 12.7% of SAG-AFTRA members earn the annual 26,470 needed to qualify for union health insurance. Through audition pay, 48 non-booked auditions in one year will qualify you for health insurance. That's fewer than one per week and even fewer. That is... Amazing. And I think, okay, and they have a lot of other amazing points on here. Take a look at this website. I think, so the stuff that I have in conversation come up against when people are like, but if you do this, then it'll create a problem for people getting in the door, for people who don't have representation, for people who, because there's, because obviously, as we said at the top, it's a very relationship based 
nepo baby <laughs> like nepotism mm -hmm. drives a lot of who gets jobs to me that feels very fear-based i think that there there are ways to help i don't like using the term developmental actor but it's something that i've heard used like help actors who are earlier in their careers trying to you know maybe be seen for parts you can make sure that there's a certain amount of auditions available for that i'm not going to say it, it's like there's not going to be a way that like the old system would have to like find a new way of being but i don't think having people do endless amounts of free labor is the answer but also those problems that you just out outlined for you know uh non-union actors finding their foot through the door those problems already exist yeah to me, those those sort of seem like separate issues. Like it's already it is already extremely difficult for a non-union actor to one find representation and then two book enough work as a non-union member to then qualify to get into the union. That's a great point. Like those are already pretty massive hurdles that exist completely independently from the fact that union actors should be getting paid for their labor i mean non-union right. actors should be getting paid for their for their audition labor but i mean and there's already you know. a whole industry which is they call it pay to play where you pay to go be seen by a casting director i mean there's already this stuff where you're not only not only is it free labor oh, you're yeah. paying to be seen you're pay like it's it's a mess i would rather know there were less people being seen for a part but legitimately being seen because we are being paid to be seen than mm -hmm take off half a day, like lose income, put in 15 hours of free labor and not even know if my tape is going to be seen past 20 seconds. Well, this is super exciting. I am really hopeful that with the energy that has gone into and has come out of the, the WGA strike, the SAG strike, just all of the union activity that is now percolating across the country that um, rank and file SAG members start to feel a little bit more militant in what they should be demanding from not only leadership in the union, but also from the studios. Uh, I, I have to be hopeful that this galvanizes, I think, I would say a more militant SAG rank and file to, to like really push for some of these demands in the future. It would be great. It would be great to see. Yeah, movements are are happening, so we'll keep mm -hmm. we'll keep an eye out for that. All right. Well, we should probably get to our conversation today. A really, truly wonderful conversation we had with Patricia Resnick, the screenwriter of Nine to Five. But before we do, we just want to let our listeners know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show you can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. We're going to take a break, but we will be right back to discuss 9 to 5 with Patricia Resnick. Well, we are so lucky and happy to be joined today by Patricia Resnick, 
Patricia is a renowned American screenwriter and producer with significant contributions to film, TV, and theater. She penned the iconic film 9 to 5, which we will be talking about today. Resnick also contributed to television recently as co-exec producer for Better Things. And in theater, she earned a Drama Desk nomination for 9 to 5, the Broadway musical book, and wrote sketches for Lily Tomlin's Appearing Nightly, and so much more. But we just want to dive right into this conversation with you. Welcome to Movies Versus Capitalism, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for giving me points with my 27-year-old son. <laughs> does, he, does he listen to the podcast? Or just he listens to podcasts? He, he listens to podcasts, but he's very anti-capitalist. Oh, hell yeah. So that's where I get, that's what I get the points for, being on your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to provide those points for you. Thank you. Echoing what Rivka said, we're so thrilled. This is the first time we get to speak to someone about an iconic film who actually wrote the film. So we're thrilled. But before we even get into that first um, there was big news this week. Uh, the Writers Guild of America, which had been on strike for, geez, how many months at this point? Just about five. Five months. Um, yeah. Reached a tentative agreement with the AMPTP, the studios and the streamers. And uh, as of, I believe, a day ago, the strike has ended. And from what it, and we, we have a bunch of friends who are in the guild. And from what it sounds like, it sounds like, you know, the guild got a lot of what it was asking for and people are happy with the deal. So we just wanted to ask you about your experience through this strike. And I mean, you've been in this industry for a while. I think when we were speaking on the phone, you said this is your fifth strike. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about how the industry has changed from that time and how this strike maybe feels different or the same from strikes of the past? The other strikes that I was involved in that, that stand out in my mind, because there were three in the 80s, so they tend to mush together a little bit in my brain, but they generally were over... Uh, a new piece of technology. So whether it was video cassettes or then DVDs, mm -hmm. it, it generally had something to do with that. Um, just as AI was a big part of this strike um, and certainly not the only problem that we had. But I have to say this strike felt totally different to me than the other strikes in that uh, it felt like there was so much more public support and unions, which I grew up in a very left-wing, very pro-union household. Um, we didn't have union members. My mom was a housewife and my dad was an attorney, but we believed in unions. We believed you don't cross a picket line, all of that. And then I guess sometime maybe in the 80s, 90s, um, there started to be a general anti-union feeling in America. And um, that seemed to continue until recently. I've, I've never had as many cars honking horns in support. <laughs> Every time I was picking, it didn't matter which studio. And things that surprised me were a guy in a mail truck a postman was honking his horn. Two cops in a cop car were honking their horns. There was just um, so much support. And then the support between the unions, the Teamsters were really key in helping us because the problems that we writers have when we strike as opposed to actors or directors, when they strike from day one, production stops. When we strike, especially because you often know, the studios know 
there might be a strike, they start having people write scripts faster, they start stacking scripts. And so it usually takes a few months before we even begin to touch them. But what was different this time was that the Teamsters would not cross our picket lines. Mm. You can't make a TV or show or film without trucks. It's not possible. And so we were able to shut down a lot of productions really quickly. So, and I, I feel like a lot of the reason for the support is because people are sick of toxic capitalism. People are just sick to death of it. And to have these CEOs who are getting paid $250 million a year or whatever idiotic amount they're getting, <laughs> whining and crying about the fact that they can't, you know, give people a 1% raise, that they can't mm. pay people enough to afford to live in New York or LA where the rents are insane. I think people are just really, really tired. Wow. To hear, I mean, I was feeling that as well, but to hear you say how that difference was so tangible and that solidarity is so widespread is really hopeful and inspiring. And I think, I mean, we talk about all the time how deeply we need to share those moments of hope and celebration in this journey and they can get lost. But that's really beautiful to hear because we know that while this fight was won here, you know, SAG is still waiting to have their conversation and their yeah. agreements <laughs> met and there'll be so many more. So I think, as you're saying, just as the postman and I don't know if I'll be where I'll be on the police union, but as the postmen <laughs> were out there supporting us, that that awakening and you can't beat being on the street and having that recognition. I had that as well. And it's exhilarating of just person to person, worker to worker. Yeah. Labor is labor, period. And that yeah. realization that like there are people who are making so gross amounts of wealth off of labor that is not theirs. As you said, I think people are waking mm -hmm. up and that's inspiring and exciting. And that's a good segue to start talking about your film, because this is a story of, of real solidarity between three women. Today, we are discussing a film that was has been on our list for a long time. I'm, I'm so excited we get to do it in this way. But we're talking about Nine to Five. This film was directed by Colin Higgins, written by yourself, Patricia Resnick, <laughs> and Colin Higgins. Produced by IPC Films, which is Jane Fonda's company, and just distributed by 20th Century Fox. The film was made for under $10 million and grossed over $103.9 million worldwide, becoming the first female-dominated film to gross $100 million at the box office. This movie stars Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and... Dabney Coleman. And if you've never seen it or haven't seen it in a while, 9 to 5 is a dark comedy that unfolds as three female secretaries played by Fonda, Tomlin, and Parton who are working in the male-dominated workplace of consolidated companies, which I just have to say, wow, what a brilliant name for a company. <laughs> the trio spend a night together having drug-induced fantasies of killing their misogynistic boss, Franklin Hart, played by Dabney Coleman. Then, through a series of mishaps and misunderstandings, the ladies take vengeance against Hart by kidnapping him and taking control of the company. And so, before we jump into the conversation, we always like to give a little context for the year that the film came out. 
So the film, and feel free to add anything. These are just some facts to put us in the mood of the year 1980 when this film was released. Jimmy Carter is the 39th president of the United States. We've just entered into the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression, and we're in the beginnings of the student debt loan crisis. ExxonMobil is America's biggest company, followed by General Motors, Mobile Ford Motor, and Texaco. The minimum wage is $3.10 per hour, and the average monthly rent is $300. Sounds great. Michael and Jessica are top baby names. The 3M company began selling post-it notes, and CNN begins broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, and is the first all-news channel in the United States and the first network in television history to broadcast the 24-hour news cycle. So those are some of the, some of the things that are happening in the U.S. when this film comes out. So, Patricia, we always love to start off by asking our guest, why did you choose this movie for us to watch? But I'm, I'm really happy that I get to ask, why, why did you write this movie? So I had started working for a director, uh, Robert Altman, right out of um, film school. I think I've heard of him. You know, it's, it's funny with time, some people have, some people have not, but he was one of the preeminent directors, certainly of, of the 70s. And uh, I, I had co-written a couple of movies for him. I had left him, I, 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 you know, to try to pursue my own stuff. And I read in the trades that Jane Fonda wanted to make a movie about clerical workers with Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin had given me my very first writing gig and um, I had met Dolly and written a bit for her. Uh, I wrote a sketch for her for a share special that she was the guest star on. And I'd always been a huge fan of Jane Fonda's, both as an actress and, and as an activist. Um, so I saw that and I immediately wanted to put my, you know, put myself up for the job. And luckily we were with the same agency and she read some of my stuff and I went and met with her and she had been meeting with an organization that was trying to unionize clerical workers. And so oh, wow. she had a stack, you know, as high as my head of just statistics about secretaries and office workers. And um, but she said, but I want it to be a comedy because I think <laughs> that'll make the message more palatable. Um, so it was then up to me to try to come up with a story and parts for those three women. Wow. So we were doing a little bit of research. You know, uh, there is a documentary that came out, I think, either last year or the year before about the nine to five movement, which was a real uh, part of the, the women's liberation movement of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, that primarily focused around female office workers or just like uh, women who had joined the workforce over the preceding decades and mm -hmm. were um, encountering all of these headwinds that are so like brilliantly portrayed in the film. So I'm curious, as you're developing this movie with Jane Fonda and her company, how much are you talking about what is happening at the time? Wh what was the feeling on the ground as you were going in to develop this like with everybody? The thing for me that really informed it was going to spend a couple of weeks at, uh, it happened to be Fox's insurance company, which was just a big company in downtown LA. 
because I, I had not worked as a secretary. I'd been a waitress and various and sundry other things, but I had never been a secretary. And so I went every day for a couple of weeks and became close with some of the women and got their stories and watched what was going on. And that made all of those, you know, statistics, those kind of dry statistics come, come to life and added a whole piece of the puzzle, which was not originally in there, which was the whole question of sexual harassment. And that came up because I watched it happening. Character that Dolly Parton plays, that story was happening to the boss's secretary at the office wow. that I was hanging out at. Other than that, you know, it, it's funny. I feel like even though the impetus was to say something about offices and workers, once you get into the studio, then you're embroiled in the script itself. You know, then your notes are very rarely going to be on what you're saying. It's mm. it's more on, you know, what's the structure and what's the characters. And mm -hmm. there was some concern. My original draft was much darker. Uh, it was still a comedy, but I had them actually try to kill the boss in, in funny ways uh, instead of having fantasies about it. And that that scared them. Yes. So in 1979, when they were making it, they weren't quite ready uh, for that. So that got that got softened up. And it's interesting too that the reviews at the time, the film, as you mentioned, was a very big hit. But the reviews are resoundingly mediocre, and they almost don't even mention what it is that we're talking about. And it's interesting that. Almost all of the critics, I, I think other than Pauline Kael, most of the critics at the time were, were men. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really talk about women's rights or the message of the movie. They just kind of dismissed it as being kind of a silly movie. That's really interesting to hear. And, you know, as we've done this with different films I've seen that trend where it's sort of as you look at the reviews over time and movies that now are really particularly films that have really important, strong political messaging that really hit the heartstring. I'm thinking about, um, oh, Frank, now I'm forgetting the name of the movie with Denzel that we did with Nina Turner. John Q. John Q. Just and that there was actually when you started to uncover it, like an intentional reason for them to not want people to look at the how resonant that was with the healthcare issue. Like people were afraid of the message and this film is so popular. And I just think it's really interesting to hear that it makes a lot of sense hearing you talk about not having to think about the message as you're writing these characters, because I'm thinking about just how the political is personal, the personal is political. You don't separate those. And I just think that that is so clear in these female characters. Of course, you don't have to be thinking outwardly about their politics because everything about them is their politics and how they move through the world and their relationships with their ex-husbands and their relationships with each other and their relationships to the workplace that I think that's for me why this it was so moving on this rewatch. And I learned a lot rewatching it about writing about how you don't have to worry about pushing forward a message or being preachy when you're true to the character, that there's like truth to that humanity. You don't have to worry about the message because it's inherently going to be in the lives lived and how these characters mm -hmm. exist. And I think that's just like a, 
all of the, all of the characters are um, written so fully, played so wonderfully, so nuanced that, yeah, I mean, there's not. It's a master class in that, in in my mind. You know, it's interesting because I never really consciously thought about it, but you're you're exactly right. Once once we determined that, um, okay, one one character, one woman was going to be newly divorced and has never worked and is new to the office and is a complete fish out of water. Uh, another one is going to be uh, clearly the most efficient, smartest person in the office, but is always passed over uh, because she's female. And the third, nobody in the office likes because they're all sure that she's sleeping with the boss because the boss says she's sleeping with him. And so she's dismissed as a human being entirely. Hmm. Um, and also because of the way she looks. And so once that was set up, you're right. After that, I never had to think about, oh, does someone need to make a big speech uh, with the message? Because it's built in to mm. who they are. What you said about your your earlier draft being too dark and them actually, uh, you know, killing the boss. I think that is extremely telling because I, I, I feel like a film like this c could be perceived as dangerous in its radical politics. And I find it very interesting that, I mean, this movie was produced, I assume, in, you know, 79, came out in 80. This is coming after, you know, all of 70s, you know, Hollywood film, the golden era, you know, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola. How many, how many movies did we watch of gangsters killing one another? But the second you say, hey, maybe these three female secretaries kill their boss, that is maybe a little bit a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, it's 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 interesting because here we are in 2023 and you mentioned we did a musical based on it that was on Broadway in 2009 and then it was revived on the West End uh, in London in 2019. And since then, it's been touring all around the world. It was in Australia for a year. It's been all over the UK. It was actually just in South Korea. The uh, one place that it cannot go is China. And the reason is because they're standing up to authority. And wow. so that's not kosher. Mm -hmm. I'm mixing metaphors wildly by using kosher <laughs> in a China, sorry about China. But anyway, um, there's still problems with, mm -hmm. with that. It's interesting. Well, we'll kind of jump around, but since you brought up the musical and the music, and one of the things that is so, this movie is so known for is the song, which was actually written after right Did, um it was written yeah. and inspired like throughout which i just as a as a writer and an actor and a creator there were so many pieces of how, just how the movie was put together that were really inspiring starting with you hearing of the story starting that jane fonda heard about this movement was involved with this movement knew this would be a great story and then you heard it and came together and started collaborating based on just the desire to tell this labor story and then get together this amazing group of women and men, but like women, and that then Dolly Parton's like, I, I'll do it, but I want to write the music. So like right. all these really amazing, now famous and iconic pieces of this story seem to come together really collaboratively, but like driven by a passion to tell this story, driven by a, a creative, a shared creative desire, which is really rare to see and see 
allowed under this capitalist system. So I wonder also how much of that was because this was Jane Fonda's production company and what what was your experience as a writer being able to work in that kind of environment? Well, Jane, you know, Jane was, is a real movie star. Mm. And um, during that period to get, to get Jane Fonda in a movie was, was a big get. And then to add Lily and Dolly, I mean, Lily had, uh, Dolly had never done a movie before, but she, you know, certainly had a lot of fans as a singer and Lily was very known from everything from Laugh-In to a bunch of other stuff she'd done. And we knew we had Jane from the get-go because it was her idea and her company. And it was written for Lily and Dolly. We didn't know for sure that we would get them, but but we did. And from that from that point on, you know, the movie was certainly going to get made. There was no question about it. And from when I first pitched it to the studio until it came out was about a year, which is really fast in movie time. Wow. Um, although it was three administrations in that year, the, the head of the studio changed three times. So by the time it came out, uh, Sherry Lansing was president and got to take credit for it. So that, that was nice for her. But it was a great thing. It was a great thing to work on. Um, one of the executives was a very close friend of Jane's um, and female. So it was great. It was great to work on. Uh, it stopped being great for me to work on when they had trouble finding a director and finding a director in time because there was a small window when all three of these women were not booked to do something mm. else. Mm. And if you're a writer and they hire a writer director, you're, you're toast. And nowadays, almost every feature has multiple names on it. It's pretty rare if you didn't write and direct it that you're not gonna get replaced. But I was used to working with Altman who always kept his writers on the set. And and in this case, the director did not really want me to be around. And that was, yeah, that was hard. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. I kind of got nine to five. Yeah, I was going to say that's not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, we're thinking about it, that there's all these female collaborators and there is a male director. And so that's, yeah, that's resonant for sure. Patricia, I want to read uh, something I found on uh, on Twitter. This comes from user Manic Pixie Meme Queen. <laughs> wow. Not only does 9 to 5 critique capitalism, but it critiques the patriarchy and its intersections with capitalism, thus making it more revolutionary than the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> I love that. I love that too. And I wanted to use that as a preface to jump into this question because I thought one of the most brilliant parts of the film is the intersectional view it has of capitalist patriarchy or patriar patriarchal capitalism, however you want to describe it. Because J uh, Jane and Lily and Dolly are all brilliant. I also got to give it up to Dabney Coleman, who played a, an, ex an excellent piece of shit. An yeah. excellent piece of shit. That's a hard part. I've seen many people attempt it in the musical over the years. It's, it is a tough part, and he did a brilliant job. 
Hart is, you know, probably one of the worst bosses ever portrayed on film. He's a misogynist. He, you know, does he and he does everything. He does everything from, you know, forcing Violet to 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 go shopping for his wife to asking Dorley to do a turn in front of him. Uh, and then he like abusively dresses down Judy after she has a mishap with the printer. But not only do we have that, we have the the dynamic between the women at the office, which is where this intersection of capitalism and patriarchy comes in because the women are forced to be in competition with one another. And that is exemplified through the character of Roz, who is basically Hart's like number two. She's like the top woman in the office and, you know, essentially like his his spy. And, uh, you know, she'll she'll turn the other women in if it means that she's going to get advanced at all. And I thought that was such a brilliant layer of showing how because of the way that capitalism creates the scarcity mentality between people and when you add the gender dynamic it forces this like scarcity mentality between the women at the office where they feel oh no there's only space enough for one of us maybe two of us so you know you you're not my sister you're not my comrade like you're my competition i'm curious where that aspect of the story came from because i thought it was such a brilliant layer within within what was already a very dynamic story you know, in, in Hollywood at the time, as a, as a young female, I very much would feel that with female executives. Uh, there were female executives. As I said, by the time the movie came out, we, there was a female head of, you know, 20th Century Fox. But there was still very much, um, I guess this, uh, this saying is, pro I, I don't know how problematic this saying is, but since I'm Jewish, I'm going to throw it out there, but the only Jew in the country club. There was a feeling where female executives, it felt like they were afraid to really back a female writer or God forbid, a female director, because mm. if it didn't go well, they would be blamed for um, throwing their power behind someone just because they were a female. And so... I, I often felt that they were harder on me because I was female. And also I was in I was in my twenties and you know most of these women were at least in their thirties, which means that they were born in in the four in the forties, in the nineteen forties. Mm -hmm. And so they were really uh inculcated maybe a little bit more than I was with uh, that 50s mentality about the male and the power dynamic. It was really a, really a problem. And then there's always, you know, there's always the person who's in whatever minority it is who aligns themselves with management. That just always happens. There's always someone who feels that, you know, well, I can get the little power detritus. I can get the little leavings, <laughs> you know. I, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's who's a teacher at an art college and they're trying, they're really trying to unionize. And a lot of the faculty is management aligned. Mm. And it's so crazy to me. Interesting. It's what's wrong with you? How how do you not see that? Of course, unionizing is going to be good for you. Be nothing but good for you. Especially at an art school. 
at an art school, right? Yep. That's <laughs> nuts. But anyway, so, you know, this is still going on. But it was also important to me at the time, I loved that the three women end up bonding, you know, because unfortunately, and this is still true, however many decades later, but so many movies with multiple women in them, the women end up being adversaries. And I loved in this that even though Roz is adversarial, the real adversary is art and the patriarchy and the office. And I hope you feel a little for Roz because she's not just a martinet. She clearly is in love with him, which is mm -hmm. so sick, you know, but she is. But I wanted the women, I wanted the three leads to those characters to to really bond and really form a genuine friendship, which they did. And it was really helpful that the the three actresses d did actually really get along, you know, during the shoot from everything I understand. Uh, and I think that you felt it. Yeah, truly. It's the heart of the film. Yeah. I mean, the scene where they're all smoking pot together and laughing hysterically. Like, yeah. I dare anyone to watch that and not smile. You can't. It's infectious. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it's placed so perfectly because that is just the point where you're tied with them through this, through the joy, which again, this is a labor movie. And so I think that it's so joyful is really important because we talk a lot about how, how much that can be missed in organizing and labor building and how crucial it is that it, it's joyful because ultimately the outcome is like we're looking for more joy and abundance and well-being so the process can be and I also thought you wrote I thought Roz was written and played with a lot of empathy which is hard we we watched Working Girl on here and I remember we had a lot of conversations there was a lot of like adversary between the two female characters yeah. and the boss character and to me I was like I almost in the rewatch was getting ready for some girl bossing and I didn't find any of that in this, which was really a wonderful surprise mm -hmm. because I felt like, you know, you think of the 80s as a time where that was being pushed forward as the as sort of like the brand of female empowerment. But the problem, of course, with girl boss is like there's only one room for one boss and it's just right. a replication of the system. And this film at its, at its heart is not that at all. In fact, at the end for anyone who hasn't seen it in a while or revisited, it's if you're feeling that all the way through, then it's pretty mind-blowing when you get to the end and the office is literally transformed by uh, these women. Not just, you could have easily made it just, right, like feminist vibes. <laughs> or like that, or like they get rid of heart and that's, you know, that's right. the big win. And that's the right. win. And now everyone gets to work without this awful man around, but that has nothing to do with the system. Instead, they transform the office to have in-office daycare, flexible, like things that I'm like, wow, these are so radical. Flexible hours, yeah. job sharing programming. Things we still don't have. Things yeah. we still don't have. Yep. Still don't have. Job sharing, an, a, a, like an alcoholics recovery program. <laughs> like uh, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, Rivka, you said something that made me think about something that I've never thought, which is unusual with 9 to 5, because I've been talking <laughs> about it for so many years. But but the thing about the competition between men, women and the friendship between women, you know, a lot of the competition between women, some of it's overwork, but I think so much of it is over men, right? 
And I think the fact that I'm, I'm not a straight female, I'm a gay female. And so my, I, I don't, I don't have that mindset of, oh, I'm competing with the other women to, to get the guy. And that's the scarcity thinking, right? Cause I want mm -hmm. that guy and there's only that one and other women are trying to get him from me and are they prettier than I am? And all of that, um, that, you know, that was not in my worldview. And so I wonder if that kind of seeped in. And thank God it was not in this film. It was so, it's so refreshing. Yeah. In fact, like I can't most feel it's like this happened. And then you have all these other films that replicate some of those same patriarchal stereotypes that are true. But also yeah. women care so much more about women care so deeply about their friendships and about these bonds. And the fact that that is so scary and radical is says a lot and how empowering that is. It's funny, I didn't even clock that there wasn't a romance until right now because I didn't I didn't miss it, you know, like yeah. and 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 I'm assuming that's like a note that you would probably get or anyone would get from a studio head like, oh, we got to have a romance in here. Otherwise, right. it's not a movie. Yeah, it never, never came up. We did put put a little one in the musical, but that was. That was primarily, well, it's for two reasons. One is if you've got Dolly Parton writing your score and you can't have <laughs> yeah. her write a love song, yeah, you're, 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 you're kind of missing something. But also, we also wanted to, we wanted to have a, a guy in the show who was a good guy. We didn't want to make it seem like we're just male bashing and all the mm -hmm. men are awful. And the part of, the Dolly character's husband um, is is small. And so we gave the Lily Tomlin character a romance, but we uh, flipped it by making him much younger. Younger, He's a much Ooh, younger man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. so tried to make it not the standard. Patricia, I'm curious, one of, one of the last questions I have, jumping off of what we were just talking about, these these reforms that the women institute in their workplace that make the workplace just like, you know, night and day better for everyone. Um, these are the type of reforms that you would, you know, normally see through like a unionization effort. You already spoke about, you were, you know, you were researching and working with unions at the time and writing this movie, but the, the idea of unionization doesn't come up in the film. Right. Was there ever a conversation about that? I mean, obviously... The premise of the movie, three women kidnap their boss and then make their office better, you know, doesn't right. necessarily need a union and it works just, it works like fine on its own. But I'm curious if there was ever a conversation about, uh, you know, is there a union storyline or anything like that? You know, possibly, possibly early on because Jane was so involved with, um, and actually the, the group is, was and is, they still exist called Nine to Five, although nobody works nine to five anymore. People would kill now for a nine to five, sure. nine to five job. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, we never talked about it that much simply because when she sent me off to think of a story, the first thing that occurred to me was, you know, what if it's these three women with just the worst boss in the world and they hate him so much that they try to kill him and end up kidnapping him. That, that was the one liner. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the nitty gritty of putting together a union does not necessarily lend itself to comedy. You know, witness, <laughs> Norm, you know, Norm Norma Ray, 
which is a you sure? you know, great movie, you know, Union. It's a wonderful movie, but uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly a drama. I also wanted to ask about the the end because I was also surprised that like, this is like you're saying a comedy, but it was, I very much could feel the, the need for that darkness and the edge. And so I think it's interesting. You said there's an even darker, there was an even darker desire of yours, which I love. Yeah. But um, they do make all of these changes and ultimately because it makes people happier, the big capitalist at the top is happy because they're getting better work. And so it works out right. for them. And so we feel like they got away with something. However, there is, which I think is really interesting, they're standing in the child daycare and Russell Tinsworthy, the uh, the board chairman, who's like the big wig, wig and wearing all white and a hat and who's just flown in from Brazil, is hold, literally holding a little girl in his hands. And the women are behind him and there. He's like, I love all of these things except for the pay equity. Like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> And so at the very end, you get this feeling of like, it it's not giving that sort of completely cathartic, this is totally happy. Like if you're watching, you know, there is real work to be done. We get some right. things, but like the most important, the most fundamental thing is still being flicked away by the man at the top and by this system. And I thought that was, yeah, it left me really thinking and it left me really loving that choice. So I was, I was just curious if there were other options, if there was a lot of thought about like, what do we, how do we end this? Do we give them everything? I mean, it, first of all, that, that line, it's interesting because we, we kept that line in the musical and it still gets a, a huge response. It gets an enormous laugh, which is kind of too bad. You know, you almost wish it didn't because if it wasn't a problem yeah. anymore, it wouldn't get the laugh, but it's a laugh of recognition mm. by the women in the audience. Um, Cause they're still, you know, not parody, you know, is it better? Yeah. Is it equal? No, it's not. Um, and I think the line is there just because we didn't want to do, Oh, this is the perfect little happy ending. And they all went to the seashore, tie it up in a bow and, but as far as just ending the movie, it's funny. Um, we had a lot of trouble ending it. We never could quite, quite come up with that button, which is why at the end now there's the role that tells you what happened to each of them. That that happened in post because they realized somehow the end of the movie just didn't feel like an end and same thing in the musical we keep but we changed a bit what happens to everybody but it was the same thing i th there's a speech now at the end uh that's not in the movie because one of the nice things about theater is you get to keep messing with it um mm -hmm. where the violet the lily tomlin character makes a speech about you know there's the guy and there's the little guy and the little mm -hmm. guy is everybody, you know, including women. And what the life is like of the guy as compared to what the life is like for the little guy. And that speech gets huge applause, but you still can't end on it. So I don't know what it is about ending that movie, but we seem to need that scroll and we needed that line to say, yeah, but there's still a lot of work.
there's still a lot of work. Yeah, it's it's perfect because it's like you said, it's hilarious because the the way that Sterling Hayden delivers it, and you don't expect it after he's just been so effusive o- yeah. over all the changes. Right. Um, but it is. It's that reminder. It's that reminder that yeah. yeah, there's still so much work to be done. Patricia, my last my last question before we go to the awards, and we want to be respectful of your time. But from my understanding, nine to five has taken on you know quite a new life. I would say in the last few decades between the the musical between the documentary and i think between a lot of a lot more people including your 27 year old son sort of waking up to the destructive nature of our economic system that is capitalism so i'm i'm just curious what has that been like for you kind of mm-hmm. like having having penned what has what was already one of the most like preeminent feminist pro labor movies that has now also taken on this second life as sort of like this anti-capitalist anthem. I'm just so curious what that experience has been like for you. You know, when you, when you sit down to write something, I, I don't think anybody other than a lunatic says, oh, I'm going to write something that's going to be iconic in 40 years. You know, you just, it's just <laughs> yeah. not what you're, not what you're worried about. You know, you're like, is it going to be made? And is it going to do well? And it had an interesting trajectory because it was a very successful movie. And then I went on to write other things, none of which got close to, you know, that sort of success. But I was, you know, able to, lucky enough to keep a career going and keep working. And people had a lot of love in their heart for it, but you didn't hear about it that much. And then it feels like, God, when was it? Maybe in the early 2000s, I was asked, they were going to screen it at the Egyptian theater out here, they were doing some, I don't know, they would just show older movies. And um, I, would I come and answer questions? I said, sure. And I showed up and there were all these people in their 30s and 20s. There was a huge male gay audience. There were younger people. I didn't expect that. Because I, you know, I don't know who's watching it. And a lot of them had kind of grown up on it. It was like one of those DVD, it wasn't a DVD, it was a video cassette that, you know, their families had four video cassettes that they would watch Mm -hmm. endlessly as children. So they had an affection for it. And so that, it started kind of coming back into consciousness. And then, then we did the musical. And when we did the musical, it was prior to Me Too. And what was so interesting, because it changed so much very shortly thereafter, but when we were working on the musical, a lot of journalists were doing interviews with me. They were all men. And they all said, is it set then or now? And I said, it's set then. And they said, well, how are contemporary audiences going to relate? All those problems have been fixed. Uh, what? <laughs> That's what they thought. Wow. That's what they thought. And of course, Me Too disabused them of that knowledge. And then Mm -hmm. that opened up a whole new, you know, uh, viewership, I think, for it. And, uh, you know, as wonderful as it is to to sit in an audience and hear people still laugh and cheer, it's sad because they're still completely relating to something that I wrote in my 20s. And you can see by my hair... I am very, very far away mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. that time in my life and things haven't changed enough. And yeah. a lot of things have gotten worse. It's very true. Yeah. yeah. Well, Patricia, we, I, this was such a joy, but before we let you go, the, first, the last 
few things we like to do. We like to give out awards for each film. There are three of them. What am I getting? Uh, <laughs> you're getting all of them. Okay. It's kind of like our version of the Oscars, but, you know, with our twist on it. So the first award is Best Politics. This goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm going to go ahead and say, I, I mean, I think all three of the main women have pretty phenomenal politics, especially when they're working together. But I think Dora Lee, for me, mm. I think was just had like, did, did not seem to be a mean bone in her body. Uh, she was the first one after uh, after it became clear that Lily Tomlin had stolen a body. Dora Lee's like, all right, well, we're all in this together now, you know? So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to give it to Dora Lee. I'm going to give it to Violet. Although Dora Lee is a strong contender for me, Violet, I, I align the most with Violet's values and that those values came into action so clearly, but that Violet had been sort of very clear on those for so long and I think just was really had been there putting in the time that sort of was when she had solidarity and women who came around her. But I think she she sort of like had set the ground for this to be ready and knew how just did her job so well and was so clear about the injustice and clear about what was happening and articulate about that, where I think for both Doralee and Judy, they had something, they had a, an intuition, but I think they sort of, we saw them awaken a little bit more to those injustices mm. where I felt like Violet had a, more of a clarity about it. So I'm going to give it to Violet. Okay. I, I, I actually agree with Rifka on this one. Um, I think for Doralee, this is a job. And while I think she is um, very strong within herself and a very good friend to the women, ultimately, I think Violet is the one who who really sees and knows and understands exactly what's wrong in this company and can articulate what's wrong. She just can't change it on her own. Mm. But she knows. She gets it. She knows what's going on. And I just want to underline again, that's why this film is so radical, because we've seen lots of films that tell us that you can make change alone. And certainly movies, as we've inherited them under Hollywood, sort of demand that you have a hero story. And this isn't that. This is a story of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And I think with just as we've investigated movies, it's really, really rare to find that most feel that they have to have a solo hero. Also, I wanted to mention really fast because I forgot to mention it earlier. All of the scenes are just like the quick cuts of all of the women doing labor in the office and showing showing Violet and then Judy once she gets the hang of it of like how hard they're working and them in the flow of answering calls, putting people on hold, putting people, like mm. look in their files. It's such a such a great reminder that there's no such thing as unskilled labor. And even like every single job requires skill and it requires practice and it was really really nice to see that portrayed so well in this movie yes thank you all right our next po our next uh, award you might have guessed is worst politics goes to the <laughs> character with the worst politics this might be an easy one is there anyone worse than franklin hart in this movie i i felt just systemically russell tinsworthy <laughs> Just at the end, I thought that was so... We didn't get a lot of time with him, but I can't imagine he's a great, great guy to hang with. Once he's reached that level of success, he's probably done more uh, societal damage than Franklin Hart has. It's and I possible. love that Frank Hart was really ter was like terrified <laughs> to go off. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> I would, I would, if I had to plead my case to either Tinsworthy or Hart, I think I'd rather plead it to Tinsworthy. Oh. I, I think I might have, I don't know why, <laughs> because Tinsworthy has nothing left to prove. You know, Hart is still trying to climb the ladder. Mm, and for uh -huh. him, the only way to climb the ladder involves stepping on the heads, you know, stepping on the heads of, of everybody mm. below him. Um, where right. Tinsworthy clearly is, you know, you could maybe talk him into, uh, you know, overthrowing the government in Brazil and making you the head of me. That's true. Tinsworthy could facilitate a coup, whereas Hart doesn't have that political juice to do that. Yeah. Okay. And our last award, which will be really interesting to hear your take on, is Best Supporting Slash Spinoff. This goes to the supporting character in this movie that we think it should actually be about or that we want to have their own film centering their story. I was fascinated by Missy Hart, Franklin Hart's wife, on her yes. two-month-long cruise. I want to see the story. I, I imagine that Missy Hart is going on a swingers cruise and <laughs> is just having the most sexually liberated experience completely unbeknownst to her, her like terrible husband, Franklin, who I'm sure is very bad at sex. So I just like, that's what, that's what I was imagining. It was just, Missy was just having the best time ever on a swingers cruise while all of this was happening back at the, back at their house. Can I tell you something super interesting before you weigh in, Ruska? So yeah. in my original draft, the one where they try to kill him. So they try to kill him, I think it's three times and, and fail. And they kidnap him, but then he's found dead and they're blamed for it. And it actually turns out that Missy came back to town early and killed him, had just fucking had enough. I love that. <laughs> I love yeah. that. And that's that, that they, in 1979, they were like, yeah. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but I just, I, I, so there's a super interesting Missy backstory possible. So I love I love that you had her on a swingers a swingers <laughs> cruise. So I was torn. I really liked Maria Delgado. I know she had like a short and I don't know if that would be a comedy. I don't know what that would be, but I loved even just in the small backstory that we got, I think that would be an interesting place to go. Honestly, there were all of the sporting characters were would have been really interesting to follow. Except for maybe Dick. I don't know if I need to see Dick's movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I think that would have been an interesting storyline to follow, especially because it led to such interest. It had such interesting consequences in like what actually happened in the office and having this like flexible work schedule and the need for all of these things. I just was like, what is that? What is going on after she gets let go? So I'd like to see uh, Margaret, the office lushes story. <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> As um, as someone who who got uh, sober in the eighties and still is, I, I'm very curious about you know um, if it worked for her. That was a very very early days of rehab. Uh, mm. I think like Betty Ford was just kind of maybe starting then, and I I just would love to know uh, you know who she becomes. And uh, maybe what 
entertaining ways for alcoholism shows outside of alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, every time she said "add a girl," I I fucking laugh. That really made yes, me laugh. So good. That, <laughs> it was really Atta really, girl. really that great. Actress, Brilliant. That actress was named Peggy Pope. She she sadly is no longer with us, but I mean, she took a little part and just made it indelible. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Love, so brilliant. Love when yeah. That happens. Yeah. Actually, just a little bit more on that character as well to couch it again in a political context. Another brilliant thing is that so often you see alcoholics portrayed as only being some sort of individual malady. And this was where we're introduced to just what there was so much empathy also to just the circumstance of like, yeah, if you had such shitty conditions, it wouldn't it might be she calls it self I'm self-medicating like really in yeah. reaction and yeah. response to the circumstance. And then also that the solution could come from a communal solution could like because your work could maybe help you out in these extenuating circumstances like that could be part of the we could all be in a communal healing and that there are material yeah. efforts that could be made it's not just a matter of like well pull yourself up by the bootstraps right you know yeah the women the women cover for her and um the last thing i just i wanted to say in terms of capitalism and nine to five is there there was a point just a little bit before the pandemic where um, actually we were going to do a sequel, which I wrote with um, Rashida Jones and sold to Fox and then Disney bought Fox and it just ended up not happening. But there's so much going on now. Well, now offices have changed again because of the pandemic. But, you know, at that in 1979, if you were a secretary in a big firm like that, you could after a number of years, probably buy a little house like um, Violet has. Um, you could get a, you could own a car, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a luxury car, but you could buy a new car. You could support your kids. And these women, um, my guess is uh, there was some sort of health care. There was some kind of a pension if you were there for long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, not, that's not true. None of those things are true. And all of this, you know, office work turned into, you know, permanent temps, people who are not, they don't have health care, they don't have pensions, they can't even go to HR if you're a temp, you're, you're, you know, you're shit out of luck. And as far as sexual harassment, that just went underground, you couldn't be as blatant as hard is, but we all know it, look, it's still, it's constantly still, still happening, you know, Russell Brand's the last person that there's always there's there's always somebody is always abusing power someplace mm-hmm. and you know in in so many ways i think as bad as it was then i i think for young people in i mean i know my son is he's trying to find a studio apartment in la and is having trouble and not in like a fantastic area. He's trying to have trouble finding something for $1,800 or less for a studio. Yeah. That's absurd. It's criminal. You know, that's just absurd. He works, you know, two jobs full time. And I see that with, you know, a lot of younger writers I know. It's just, it's just very, very rough now. Yeah. So... You know, again, capitalism out of control, a little capitalism, probably a good thing. A lot of capitalism, not, not a good thing. We would maybe 
quibble on that even a little is good, but <laughs> we, but your point is absolutely 100% taken. And thank you for affirming that because I think that's helpful while it's bleak to hear it affirmed, especially from intergenerationally is, and the realities of it are validating. And I think sometimes there can be a gaslighting of, oh, it's always been this way or, oh, it's, you know, and that can do a lot of damage because it doesn't allow it doesn't allow for it. We have to name it so yeah. we can grow. And Patricia, based on everything you just said, I think we need that new nine to five now more than ever, because I think it sounds like you would have even more to say mm. in that version. So yeah, thank you. All right. Well, we're going to have to let you go. This was, again, such this was so wonderful. I know I love this. Yeah. Before we go, the last thing we ask our guest is how as artists and as people, we strive to practice our values in our own lives, uh, whether they are anti-capitalist values, feminist values, pro-labor values. So is yeah. there one thing that you do in your everyday life or a practice you engage in, an organization you work with uh, that you'd like to share with us? So, you know, I thought about it. When, when you sent me the email and it mentioned this and, and I thought, well, you know, how do I, how do I practice anti-capitalism? And other than the strike, which I, it was certainly, um, I think, uh, a blow to these giant corporations subsuming, you know, everyone. Um, I think the two more personal ways I do is one, I really try to mentor uh, younger women particularly younger women of color who might have not as much access to the business. I try to mentor them in terms of writing. There is a organization called Unlock Her Potential. It's up UP that was started by this amazing woman named Sophia Chang that if anybody is interested in either being a mentor and you don't have to be a writer, it can be anything in entertainment. Um, she actually comes out of the music, the music business. Cool. or anybody who would like to be a candidate. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I don't know if this exactly fits, but it's, it's, a, it's a big thing for me. I would never buy a dog. I don't think people should make all kinds of money breeding dogs. I don't believe in it. There's too many of them that don't have homes. They're being killed constantly in the shelters because there's no room. And so if you want a dog, please do not go to a breeder. Go, go online, find a rescue. You can find just about anything, anything you want. And, um, you know, it's kind of uh, like reusing clothing, you know, get a used mm. dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's a very, that's, that's a really good one. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. Wow. This was such a phenomenal conversation. Really looking forward to sharing this with people. It was so nice to meet you and learn more about this movie, learn more about you and talk about these politics. Great meeting both of you. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening and make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you want to support the show and get access to our premium episodes, you can go to mvcpod.com to find all of that info. And for next week's movie, we will be watching the Marxist revolutionary allegory, the animated film Ants. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See ya.